<clears throat> the last talk that I gave, I kind of took a, a text of scripture, unpacked it for you, uh, more from, a, from an expositional standpoint. What I'm going to do now is kind of from a, a topical standpoint, address the, the issues um, of, of, of culture, uh, issues that we're seeing from a standpoint of social justice, um, critical race theory. I'm gonna, all of these are going to kind of come together because one of the things that I, that I was going to say in our Q&A <clears throat> to the question of, you know, what, what do we see when it's, uh, what do we see over the horizon is, is what we're witnessing is the, the, the CRT issues and the LGBTQ plus A2S hypers, you know, ampersand. Those issues are kind of, are kind of like two, two, two legs of a, of, a, of a person. One foot get, moves forward with the issues of, of race and ethnicity, and then you see that at the fore, and then as that one moves backwards, this other one regarding uh, LGBTQ issues, transhuman issues, transgender issues, takes the fore, and then when that one kind of fades back and an election cycle hits back, you'll hear about reparations and the need to look at, at, at people of color and their interests and issues, and then that one folds back, and then all of a sudden there's a... So these, these, are, these things are kind of working back and forth, so to speak, and as a result, uh, the, the talk that I'll give this second uh, session will try to wrap both of those things together, but it'll also leap off of Daryl's talk from, the, from uh, yesterday, or yeah, yesterday evening. Um, my goal in that is to, is to show you how uh, ideologically Marxism, critical theory, critical race theory, um, and, and, and even social justice made its way into evangelical circles. How did this thing go from this godless ideology out there to I'm having to leave this church because my pastor just went woke? How did, how did that happen? And how did it happen so quickly? And so I want to unpack that for you so that you have a framework for that. Um, and perhaps many of you are, are at, at, at sound, strong, biblically theological churches on the back end of having left one that wasn't so much. And perhaps you still have friends and loved ones and people you care about who are, are, are still in those circles. What I'm, what I'm sharing with you is I, I want to tell you how that happened and even equip you for conversations that you'll probably have during the holidays with loved ones, uh, with friends that you're going to encounter and interact with. So I want to I help uh, prepare and equip you for that. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Father God, I just thank you so much for the truth of your word. Uh, uh, that it is, it is a, a, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We're grateful for it. I'm prayerful, Lord, that you would help me to clearly articulate what you would have me to in this session, that these, your people, would hear your voice, not mine, uh, and that they would be moved as a result. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I, I want to begin by telling you, uh, uh, giving you a couple of things that have happened in, in culture in a major way. Uh, this particular instance was what happened in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, it was March 8th, 2022, where 4,500 public school teachers, I've been running into a lot of you teachers here lately, right? So um, where, where 4,500 Minneapolis school teachers walked out of the classroom, and when they did, they, went, they began a 14-day strike, um, canceling lessons and sending nearly 29,000 students home during that time period. This walkout, if you will, this strike would last about 14 days. And on March 25th, there was an agreement reached. 
So between the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers and the Minneapolis Public School System, they reached an agreement. The two parties actually drafted and adopted a new collective bargaining agreement that included numerous proposals. This was an 18-page document that initially began with the need to see uh, teachers' pay increased. But it also included multiple bonuses, health care extensions, and the like. And the point of contention that started this issue in the first place with regard to the strike was that the teachers wanted to be paid a quote-unquote living wage. The teachers wanted to be paid a living wage. In my mind, that's fair. The question is, what's a living wage? I'm curious about that and the way that we do at Just Thinking. I start, we do our research. So I went and looked at what's the average teacher in the Minneapolis Public School District making. Now, while these numbers are relative, I did find that the average school teacher learns that, they, that uh, teachers earn an average of $71,535 per year. Where I live, that's some good money. But again, that's all, all that's relative. Minneapolis education support personnel, now the support personnel only made $25,000 a year. And so they wanted to see that pay increase to $35,000 a year. I thought that's fair. That's absolutely fair. Ed Graff, the Minneapolis public school superintendent, he agrees. He thinks that the teachers and the education support workers should be paid more, but he claims that the district cannot afford it. He, he believes that the salary increases will result in layoffs uh, if the deal that they crafted actually goes through. And he cited a $22 million budget shortfall. And the reason for the shortfall is because home prices in the area are ever increasing. So they're not seeing an influx of new people come into the area. What they're seeing is people actually leaving the area, uh, finding uh, uh, urban areas, suburban areas to live where costs are lower, where uh, the size of the classrooms are smaller where they can get individualized attention. So they're seeing that uh, th those kinds of tax dollars leaving the area to the tune of $22 million uh, th that, that year. Now, Minneapolis Public School Systems endured criticism, however, as the deal that was reached in March actually came to light in August. If you're, in the, if you're in the area of education, you might have heard about the deal. Revealed in August that any subsequent layoffs resulting from an agreement would be with teachers on the basis of their race. So any subsequent layoffs as a result of the budget shortfall, this was already crafted in the deal. So the deal was made, they were made aware of the deal in August. So August they look at this deal and it says, well, if there's, if there's subsequent layoffs as a result because of the, the budget shortfall, the way that, that we're going to compensate for that is we're going to lay off the teachers, so long as they're white. Now this, you all, you all don't seem phased. That shocked me. Stated as a justification for these measures is that they wanted to, quote, remedy continuing effects of past discrimination. Quote, past discrimination by the district disproportionately impacted the hiring of underrepresented teachers in the district as compared to the relevant labor market and community and results in a lack of diversity of teachers, end quote. So this is actually the first of its kind of, of um, a proposal of, of agreement that's actually been made in the United States. 
that teachers would be laid off, they're typically laid off on the basis of seniority, regardless of ethnicity. <clears throat> but in this instance, it wasn't, it wasn't seniority, it was ethnicity alone that would dictate the layoffs. Uh, James Dickey, senior trial counsel at the Upper Midwest Law Center, UMLC, says that the racial, racial component violates the Minnesota and United States constitutions. He says this, quote, the collective bargaining agreement openly discriminates against white teachers based only on the color of their skin and not on their seniority or merit, end quote. He said this, quote, Minneapolis teachers and taxpayers who oppose government-sponsored racism like this should stand up against it, end quote. When I saw that, I, I, I felt sorry for him. And here's why. If any of you are aware of what happened in Minneapolis, Minnesota in the year 2020, there was a saint that was made. St. George Floyd. And as a result of St. George Floyd, this kind of legislation, or not, not legislation, this kind of, of bargaining agreement, no one is going to try to fight this in the courts. I can promise you. If, if they do so, they, they risk being called Derek Chauvin or worse. Rosemary Rabideau, she received a phone call from the administration of Kyle Middle School where her 13-year-old son, Braden, attends. Principal Hendrick informed Ms. Rabideau that she would get an email containing claims of sexual harassment against her son. Ms. Rabideau, like any concerned parent, feared the worst, unwanted touching, uh, groping, or something along those lines. But Ms. Rabideau was surprised to hear that her son and two other boys would be charged with bullying a non-binary classmate who yelled obscenities for, at the boys for using female pronouns instead of gender neutral ones. So here these boys and girls are out on the, the, you know, the, the, the playground, uh, out in the classroom, and, and the boys look at what appears to them as a girl and they use feminine pronouns. Well, this female is now gender neutral and she only uses they them pronouns and, and as a result of being misgendered the boys are now charged with bullying uh, sexual harassment rather against a non-binary person the school considers this student's misgendering to be a title IX violation and under title IX, the school officials say that using the wrong pronoun is automatically punishable speech. Now what we are watching unfold over the course of just the last two and a half, three years is absolutely unprecedented in our times. Unfortunately, this is not limited to secular culture. Many evangelicals or professed Christians have accepted similar notions, linking them to the belief that we must, we must, we must be relevant to the world. In his admonition to the church at Ephesus, Paul noted that the purpose of the pastor-teacher is to prepare the saints for the work of ministry so that they're no longer tossed to and fro by waves of doctrine and by every wind of teaching, Ephesians 4.14. Unfortunately, as I mentioned in my previous talk, far too many pastors have abandoned this duty in favor of the false religion of critical race theory or social justice or the social gospel of some way, shape, and form. Now, during our time together, I want to go over a few concepts as we move kind of what the talk of, that, that, we, that we initially engaged on about 
critical race theory and, and how it invaded evangelicalism. As I do so, I, I want to point you to a couple of documents that I think might be helpful to you. Daryl covered, uh, and he had slides that actually walked you through the five reasons that, um, that critical race theory is unbiblical, right? So you had that. If you didn't get that, I would encourage you to find someone who has, because those are helpful tools. What those are are tools in your toolbox. That's like put, having, having a tool on your hip so that when the, when the Thanksgiving conversation t comes around, and it will, to some issue related to that, you've got biblical responses rather than emotional ones. And that's important. The sooner you can take your... your emotional um, disposition about these issues off the table and simply point to what scripture says the better off you'll be earlier in the, the the previous talk that I gave I said that, that that the word of God is sufficient to destroy strongholds so it's important that you're using the word of God in these instances the second thing that I want to point you to is a is a document known as the statement on social justice and the gospel the Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel. You can go to StatementOnSocialJustice.com. StatementOnSocialJustice.com. Now, while that statement is not Scripture, they're statements of what we affirm and what we, uh, what, what we, what we you know, disavow, what we don't believe. Um, what that will help you to do, because all of those, those affirmations, confirmations, and the like are attached to what Scripture says about these issues. And what it will do is it will provide you a biblical anthropology. A biblical anthropology. Anthropology is just the study of man. What does the Bible say about who we are as human beings? And, and, and right now, the issue of identity is under full-on assault. Everything from the gender-related issues that I mentioned earlier to ethnicity and the idolatry of melanin. All of these are issues of biblical anthropology. They're attacks against a biblical anthropology. What God says, who God says we are, and what mankind wants to create apart from what God has already designed. Okay, my goal in our time together is to accomplish three things. And if we're going to get out of here on time, you have to listen very quickly. Three things I want to do in our time. Number one, I want to help you understand the in interconnectedness of four ideas. Let me, give them, let me give you the four ideas, and I'm going to connect the dots with these. They are the social gospel, liberation theology, black liberation theology, and CRT. One more time, the social gospel, liberation theology, Black Liberation Theology, and CRT. As I go through this section, if you're writing notes, all I want you to cover are the names of the people that I'll mention. Why? Because with those headings, Social Gospel, Liberation Theology, Black Liberation Theology, and CRT, when I mention those names and you place those in your notes under those categories, you'll be able to go home, pull up a laptop, and do your own in-depth research. Okay? The second thing I want to do is I want to contrast and compare the civil rights movement with today's social justice movement. The civil rights movement with today's social justice movement. <clears throat> In that section, I'm going to compare and contrast um, Martin Luther King and the movement of civil rights. I'm going to add 
for all of its for all of his flaws and its flaws there were things that he got right and the things he got right weren't because of him but was because of the Bible that he borrowed to make those points and and you did hear me say borrowed because I'd, I'd argue that Martin Luther King was no Christian see me afterwards if you want more on that um, I'm gonna compare that with the social justice movement third thing that I want to do is I want to explain how how um, these movements entered evangelicalism how did they go from this godless ideology with Marxism and all of that how did they go from that to in the pulpits where we've got pastors tripping over their skirt to get into the pulpit to say black lives matter you heard you heard me right so y'all ready you ready all right let's get started under the inner uh, goal first one is understand the interconnectedness of the social gospel liberation theology black liberation theology and CRT it is incredibly vital to understand these ideas where they originated and, and Daryl did a fantastic job of unpacking that for you when you combine the godless ideologies of Marxism critical theory with the religious fervor of men here's your first name with men social gospel of Walter Rauschenbusch I'm gonna spell the last name for you Walter Rauschenbusch is spelled R-A-U-S-C-H-E-N-B-U-S-C-H. Walter Rauschenbusch. R-A-U-S-C-H-E-N-B-U-S-C-H. I do that slowly because I want you to leave here and do your own study. I don't want you to believe me. I want you to go study it for yourself. Walter Rauschenbusch, his early gospel, you mix that with liberation theology and black liberation theology. Under the heading black liberation theology, I want you to write down the name James Cone, C-O-N-E, James Cone. Under the heading liberation theology, I want you to write the name Gustavo Gutierrez. Last name is spelled G U T. I-E-R-R-E-Z, Gustavo, G-U-S-T-A-V-O, Gutierrez, G-U-T-I-E-R-R-E-Z, okay? So you've got social gospel, you've got liberation theology, Gustavo Gutierrez, you've got uh, black liberation theology, James Cone. So you, you mix all of those together and you'll have what we currently are dealing with from a theological framework that allowed CRT to jump into the pulpit. Let's start with the individual Walter Rauschenbusch. Uh, he, Walter Rauschenbusch was a Baptist preacher and a theologian from the early 1900s. He's the father of the social gospel. He's the father of the social gospel. Uh, if you think about the early 1900s, this was an era of massive immigration. Uh, this, was a, this was where uh, every, everyone was coming to the shores of, of, uh, of New York, right? New York Harbor, where, where, where there stands a, a, a Lady Liberty. We've got all of that happening in New York. Rauschenbusch was born in Rochester, New York, where he witnessed the difficulties of the influx of immigration to American shores. Rauschenbusch began his pastorate in Hell's Kitchen uh, Second German Baptist Church. Hell's Kitchen's Second Baptist Church. Uh, I'm sorry, Second German Baptist Church. Uh, Hell's Kitchen is an area in New York. It's a location in, in New York. You can, I mean, you, 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 I want to say there's some, there's a, 
I believe that that church is still there. I have to go back and check. I can't, I can't recall that. Do you? Um, Rauschenbusch is recognized again as the father of the social gospel, and his understanding of Christianity was this. His understanding was not that Christianity was intended to save sinners, but that Christianity was intended to be a savior for society. It's a big difference. Not that Christianity was to save sinners, but that Christianity was intended to save society. If you've heard anything that Daryl has said over the course of the last many years that we've been doing the Just Thinking podcast, is that Jesus came to save sinners, not society. Now that's difficult in a, in a part of the country where, you know, we, we wear, wear the red, white, and blue, and, and we, we, you know, we, we like our conservative politics, and, and if the, a politician can, you know, can, can give you a little Bible verse, you just, you feel real good. Well, here's the deal at the end of the day. Christ didn't come to save society. He came to save sinners. Now that does not mean that society won't be impacted by saved sinners. It should be. It should be. But the primary goal was not, let's fix social culture, society. Daryl talked about it in, in our, in, during our Q&A. That's the idea of, of saving all that's out here in the hope that what's in here gets transformed. Well, Christianity doesn't work that way. Christianity doesn't work from the outside in. Christianity works from the inside out. Walter Rauschenbusch influenced some men that, whose, name, whose names would be familiar. Let me give you one of the men that he influenced greatly, and that man is one Dr. Martin Luther King. If, if I had time, I would walk you through why that's problematic and how the civil rights movement actually ignored what it pro professed to push forward, which is, I am a man, an appeal to the Imago Dei. But the validity of your manhood, the validity of being the Imago Dei was never attached to God. It was short-sighted. How? It attached our image-bearing to government. I'm a man when government says I'm a man. I'm a man when the, the white man says, I'm a man. I, I don't even have time to unpack that. I'm going to keep moving forward. Gustavo Gutierrez, second person, known as the father of liberation theology. He was a Catholic priest in, in South America who practiced his version of Marxian liberation theology, in which groups were defined as the oppressed, you've heard this language before, the poor, and oppressors, the wealthy. Gustavo Gutierrez demanded that these groups be freed, particularly the, the poor. His initial ideological motivation was actually to improve the working conditions of the poor. Great idea. Hey, the poor are in these bad working conditions. We need to fix that. Okay, but it would go so far as to eventually lead to theological extensions and the notion that Jesus identified with the oppressed and came to liberate the oppressed, not from their sin, but from their oppressors. Well, James Cone thought that was a great idea. James Cone is on the scene in the 1960s and decides to take liberation theology and, and mix it with the cultural experience of blacks in the United States and, and, and come up with his own version of what's called black liberation theology. It's unfortunate how many of our uh, 
particularly Southern Baptist uh, um, seminaries, think James Cone is, is great. I'm going to allow you to be the, the deciding factor of that when I read you, not my words of his, not an interpretation of his words by someone else, but I'm going to read to you his words. Theologian and, and novelist James Cone, he was named the Bill Judith Moyers Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Systematic Theology at Union Theological Seminary in New York. All these people coming from New York. There was a commercial that would say, where are you from? New York City. Get the rope. Y'all remember that? Some of y'all date yourselves if you say that, though. Be careful. Many regard James Cone as the father of black liberation theology. Recognizing James Cone uh, and his effect is critical when you want to trace critical race theory and how, again, it laid a framework for how, how, how black liberation theology, liberation theology, social gospel laid a theological framework where CRT would fit wonderfully on top of, okay? When I initially started talking about James Cone to audiences, man, it's been, what, at least two, three years ago? In fact, uh, Daryl, uh, the, the, the program that you went through at Princeton, that's all you studied was Cone. And, and the reason for that, and I should let Daryl tell this, he can better than I will because I'll butcher it, but um, he, he went there for the purpose of, of understanding his enemies, he went there for the purpose of understanding what this man was saying and his impact because most, most, not all, most black churches, whether they recognize it or not, are impacted by Conian theology. Again, I, w I wish we had more time to unpack that. Mark that down, go study it, and then, and then, and then see, see if I'm, I'm missing the mark. When I presented James Cone to audiences, I would actually use... Uh, a kind of a, I would play a game with the audience. I would say, okay, I've got two ideas here. They're competing ideas. Let's see if you can decide who said it first. So the game was called Who Said It First. I would lay out what James Cone said, and I would lay out uh, what the Ku Klux Klan said. And I would ask the question, who said it first? And more times than not, it was difficult to determine who said it first. So rather than taking you through that game and basically based upon our limited amount of time, I want to provide for you, not my words, not someone's interpretation of the words of James Cone, but I want to read to you what James Cone says in his own words. In his book, Black Theology and Black Power, Cone says this, quote, for white people, God's reconciliation in Jesus Christ means that God made black people a beautiful people. Full stop. Let's stop there. So God's reconciliation in Jesus Christ means not that you've been freed from your sin, not that you've been reconciled to God because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, but God's reconciliation has taken on a very ethnocentric lens. And that ethnocentric lens is simply that God made black people a beautiful people and if they, meaning white people, are going to be in a relationship with God, they must enter utilizing their black brothers who are a manifestation of God's presence on the earth, end quote. Well, I mean, I think black people, white people, Asian people, Hispanic people are all beautiful people. The, the variety is, is, is amazing. I've, I've walked through airports, and I'm kind of one of those, I, I, I people watch. You might be like me, like, you just watch people. 
and you see people from different backgrounds and colors and hair textures and heights and you're just in awe of, of the beauty of God's creation in humanity. It's like, wow. But to go from that to elevating ethnicity to some salvific status is blasphemous. But that's what's being done here. Cohen goes on to say this, quote, the assumption that one can know God without knowing blackness is the basic heresy of white churches. They want God without blackness, Christ without obedience, and love without death. What they fail to realize in America is God's revelation on the earth has always been black, red, or some other shocking shade, but never white, end quote. And I would put that up against another quote and take out the words black and white and, and utilize the theology of the clan, and you would not be able to discern the difference. Cone would write in an article titled Christianity and Power, Cone writes this, quote, Jesus' death on the cross represents God's boundless solidarity with victims, even unto the point of death. Jesus Christ's res resurrection is good news that there's life for the poor that is not determined by their poverty but overcomes it, end quote. Daryl just read to you what was Leviticus 19.15, that we're not to show deference to the poor or to the great, but to have equal justice. That, that, it, James Cohn was, was the professor of systematic the, theology at Union Theological Seminary. His systematic theology is horrific. You, you can't string us, you, 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 can't, you can't take this idea and start at Genesis and go all the way through Revelation systematically and find this disjointed idea uh, in the pages of Scripture. It would, it would be a, a contradiction to itself. In his book, Black Theology and Black Power, published in 1969, Cohn writes this, quote, if the gospel is the gospel of liberation for the oppressed, then Jesus is where the oppressed people are and continues his work of liberation there. Jesus is not safely confined in the first century. He is our contemporary, proclaiming release to the captives and rebelling against all who silently accept the structures of injustice. If he, Jesus, is not in the ghetto, if he is not where men are living at the brink of existence, but is rather in the easy life of the suburbs, then the gospel is a lie. Is this not why God came to the earth in Jesus Christ, so that man might become as he is? As long as man is a slave to another power, he is not free to serve God with mature responsibility. He is, he is not free to become what he is, human, end quote. Now, what Cohn is arguing is the same thing that Gutierrez and Rauschenbusch actually argued. They desire a Jesus who came to save society instead of saving sinners. And what they were looking for was a quick fix that delivered them from the temporary outcome of their condition. Rather than having a mind toward the eternal reward that they would gain as a result. I cannot wait for you to hear, those of you who are staying here, I cannot wait for you to hear the sermon that Daryl is going to deliver, the, the, well, it's, not, it's not a sermon, it's, it's, it's Bible study, right? Okay. Well, you'll want to be a Sunday school tomorrow. Daryl, I'm not going to give it, give it away, but Daryl is going to unpack for you what, what Jupiter Hammond experienced. He was, a, he was a slave for all of his life. And, and, and what you're going to hear, I'm, I'm going to leave that alone. I'm going to stick to my, just bookmark that. 
and then, and then be here tomorrow. I, I love hearing it every time. I, I, I thoroughly enjoy hearing it every time. According to Cohn, Gutierrez, and Rauschenbusch, Christ came to actually do the opposite of, of what he prayed. Uh, he, he, there, was, there was no idea of unity. There was no idea of bringing, bringing people together. There was no idea of oneness, which he, which he prayed for in, in the garden. He, he prayed that they might be one as, as he and the Father are one. That was not the, the goal. I want to move on to goal two because I, I wanted to give you the idea again how uh, these ideas, my first goal was to give you the ideas of how the interconnectedness of the social gospel, liberation theology, black liberation theology, and CRT are connected. The connection point is that these ideas provided a theological framework by which CRT comes from the outside and fits nicely into the theological framework set up by the social gospel, by liberation theology, and black liberation theology. Second goal. And I won't be as long on this one. To contrast and compare the civil rights movement with the social justice movement. You guys ready? Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. made his famous I Have a Dream speech August 18th, 1963. He did so in the shadows of the uh, America's symbolic Lincoln Memorial. Dr. King would go on to explain the issues of Negro life during the time in which he lived it under the Jim Crow era. King would use this platform to call America to the height and beauty of the Judeo-Christian worldview, which permeated the nation's foundational documents. King would say this, quote, in a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. The architects of our republic wrote these magnificent words in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, and they were, what they were signing is a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise to all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, end quote. Dr. King will go on to say this, quote, we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and security and the security of justice, end quote. Now, King's appeal to the equality of all humanity is, the most famous, is actually the most famous part of his speech. He would say this, quote, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, end quote. Let me pause here and say that statement alone in our day would get his statue torn down in Washington, D.C. While there's much that we could take the time to unpack, and I only alluded to some of King's issues uh, theologically, there are three components of what he shared that we can't acknowledge are true. Why? Because they're actually based upon Scripture and not on, on the ideas of King himself. Number one, the core of this movement was this. It was an appeal to the Judeo-Christian founding of the United States. It was an appeal to the Judeo-Christian founding of the United States. Number two, it was an appeal to equality of opportunity, not equity of outcome. It was an appeal to the equality of opportunity, not the equity of outcome. And number three, it was an appeal to the imago Dei in all of us. An appeal to the imago Dei in all of us. Now, long after King's assassination on April 4th in 1968, historians would agree that, that this, the March on Washington, 250,000 people, was absolutely the height 
and pinnacle of the civil rights movement. The cause of nonviolence was one that King constantly pressed forward. Let me only give you one quote uh, of King from uh, amplifying the idea that he was all about nonviolence. He said this, quote, The nonviolent resistor not only avoids external physical violence, but he also avoids internal violence of the spirit. He not only refuses to shoot his opponent, but he refuses to hate him. And he will always stand with understanding and goodwill, end quote. What is he appealing to? He's appealing to what's going on in here. He's appealing to what we understand as believers as a regenerate heart. If we have a regenerate heart, we won't respond in the same way that the world does. In the text of scripture that I read earlier, Paul would say it this way. He'd say that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Here we are 59 years later. What we have in the, is after the civil rights movement is the social justice movement, right? The, the Black Lives Matter movement. This is fronted by three women, Alicia Garza, Patrice Kalors, and Opal Tometi. On June 13, 2013, they began their movement. That date was significant because it was the date of the Trayvon Martin case. The Trayvon Martin case. Brief historic review is that this was the six-women jury, which had included one minority, that found George Zimmerman not guilty. And the verdict, despite being given the last-minute option of three choices, they could choose second-degree murder or find him guilty of a lesser charge of manslaughter or find him not guilty. The jury that was selected chose, based upon all the evidence, selected guilty. Well, this, this issue... Uh, Daryl mentioned before, social justice has nothing to do with truth or evidence. It has everything to do with outcome. I, I, I desire this outcome, and everything, regardless of the evidence, needs to align with that outcome. If it does not, allow with the, if it does not align with that outcome, then I am going to march in the streets to, and, and, and tear down a city in an effort to establish social justice. The next thing in line that really amplified the Black Lives Matter movement was the, um, the decision in the case of Michael Brown. Michael Brown was, the, was uh, what you might have remembered, if you can remember that far back, was this was the hands up, don't shoot. Michael Brown, according to the narrative, was just this, he was a big guy, just a good guy, doing the right kind of thing, and he, the police engaged him, and he had his hands up, and he just said, my hands are up, don't shoot, don't shoot, and they shot him. That was the narrative that went around the world before the truth came out that this guy was a violent, crazy man who fought with officers. And at the risk of his life, the, the officer had to, had to shoot. How do we know that? Well, in the Michael Brown case, we actually have Obama, Obama's Department of Defense head, Eric Holder, who actually studied the case. So... In the case of Michael Brown, Obama's DOJ could not find enough evidence to charge the officers of wrongdoing in the Brown shooting. So let me be clear about this. A black president, a black attorney general, and a black district attorney could not find the hands up, don't shoot narrative to be accurate. Yet that did not stop Black Lives Matter from, 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 from taking this uh, situation, monetizing it, 
for their own purposes and benefit. After a seven-month investigation, Attorney General Eric Holder said the following regarding the issue, quote, this morning, the Justice Department announced the conclusion of our investigation and released a comprehensive 87-page report documenting our findings and conclusions that the facts do not support the filing of criminal charges against Officer Darren Wilson in this case. Michael Brown's death though a tragedy did not involve prosecutable conduct on the part of Officer Wilson, end quote. Now, the high point of the Black Lives Matter movement was not these two cases, but the case regarding the man I just mentioned earlier, Saint George Floyd. Officer Derek Chauvin was involved in that situation. You all know the deal. 2,000 cities in all 50 states and in 60 countries around the world. These peaceful demonstrations were to uh, inestimable, inestimable damage and cost to cities around the country. Even businesses in predominantly black communities are lost forever. There are numerous contrasts that can be made, however, with the modern social justice movement and the civil rights movement. Earlier I said that there were three components to civil rights, Judeo-Christian founding of America, equality rather than equity, image of God in all of us. Black Lives Matter movement, American culture at its founding is based in the sin of slavery. That's their primary tenet. Primary tenet. American culture at its founding based on the sin of slavery. Number two, all inequity is a result of systemic racism. All inequity. The fact that I'm short and you're tall, if you happen to be white, that's systemic racism. Everything, every inequity. Did I say every? I probably should have done what, what Daryl did and said every or something or spelled it different or funky or something. For those who might be thinking I'm overstating the case, let me unpack with you what Black Lives Matter said on their own website. Black Lives Matter was founded in 2013 in response to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin, the Trayvon Martin's murder, murderer. Black Lives Matter Foundation whose mission is to eradicate white supremacy and build local power and intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by state and vigilantes, they could have written that better, by combating and countering attacks of violence, creating space for black imagination and innovation and centering on black joy. I have no idea what those things are. Black joy, black imagination, there are no calls for unity, no calls for upholding historic Judeo-Christian values, no calls for freedom or the joy that comes from living in a just society. These two contrasting approaches are significant. One in the 60s that had a, 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 a light of Judeo-Christian foundation, a light of a, a, point, a hat tip to scriptural sufficiency in an effort to deal with the issues of the culture, a hat tip. And, and, and look what impact they had. Some of it good. And then the godless ideology of the Black Lives Matter movement and the destruction that it caused. Number three, I want to do this, explain how these movements entered into evangelicalism. On March 25th, 2020, the unfortunate death of George Floyd sparked a flame sparked a flame, both figuratively and literally. And I would suggest that for evangelicals, the slow death of biblical sufficiency actually began long before that date. 
within evangelicalism, there were two factors that prepared the path for CRT. What I told you was I told you about the theological framework that was in place. I told you about the godless ideology that would come in, land, and now it's just waiting for the right match for the powder keg to blow in churches. But I would argue that long before that, there was a, there was a, there was a stream that was happening. And the stream had two angles. One was the idea of pragmatism. Pragmatism. The idea that if it works, it must be right and true. Well, we, we, we watched our church go from uh, 100 people to 1,000 people. Well, how'd you do it? Well, we put these lights and, and, and we, had, we had our pastor come down on a, on, a, on a string pole and he was going doing his thing. And we, well, we grew up from 100 to 1,000. I mean, there's more people hearing, hearing the word of God. I mean, even though we had people on a trapeze and, you know, angels coming down from heaven with wings and... And, and we, had, we had a rock band concert that we put up in, out for Sunday morning. And, and you know, we had, we had jump machines for the kids. And, and I'm not saying a jump machine for a kid is inherently bad, but if that's your strategy for winning souls to come into your church, that might, not, that might be a bad strategy. Because the church is made up of, of believers, not pew-sitters. Can anybody get an amen? Two streams. One was pragmatism. The other, sentimentalism. Pragmatism holds that whatever works must be correct and true. Why? Because it works. Sentimentalism asserts that what feels right must be true. And cultural sentimentalism was on full display on May 25th, 2020. Cultural sentimentalism. What do I mean? Well, if you were to uh, run into anybody, I even saw this in, in my own city in, in Omaha, Nebraska. I watched pastors of massive Bible-believing churches race out to a Black Lives Matter event and put a microphone in front of somebody and just say, tell us how you're feeling. We're speaking truth to power, and we, we're not going to stand for this, and we're not going to... What are they doing? They're getting emotional based on a false narrative. They're hyped up. And then the pastor gets kudos. Why? Because he's relevant and sensitive to the culture. So he comes back to his church and they, and so now what do they want to do? They want to know the next thing that they can do. It's like a drug. They want to know the next thing that they can do to be out and, and they're listening to the culture and taking their cues based upon every wind of doctrine rather than upon the accuracy of Scripture. One of the problems with sentiment, caused by what I call the anesthetic of sentimentalism, because sentimentalism didn't just happen on, on that day. Sentimentalism had been going on for quite some time, along with pragmatism. Whoever has the biggest cry story, whoever has the biggest situation, if you could find the, the best story to capture that makes Scripture sound more true, then that's what we put on display. Rather than recognizing Scripture is true, and man, we're grateful that God showed up in that instance. We had to have the story first, and the storyline took precedent, and then see God's word worked. That's been going on for quite some time. And as a result of pragmatism, sentimentalism, it made it very easy when you hear the stories of people who are out in the streets tearing it up 
you, 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 you want to do something. You want to feel something. You want to feel like you're doing something. And so this stuff begins to creep in. But the problem with it is that it abandons sola scriptura, scripture alone, in favor of solus sentimentalisme, <laughs> sentimentalism alone. Those seeking so-called analytical tools like critical race theory are, 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 are benefited by this kind of condition. Why? Because it feels good to assume that what's needed to heal the sin of racism is special knowledge what Bodhi-Bakum calls ethnic Gnosticism. Sentimentalism and pragmatism, uh, and the pragmatism that goes before it, gives individuals a high opinion of self while presenting too low a view of Scripture. It substitutes the holiness of God for the hollowness of self. It reduces sin, it increases partiality, and it deconstructs all of God's boundaries that are established by the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, before the infiltration of CRT into the bloodstream of church culture, massive doses of the anesthetic of sentimentalism were administered so that the pain associated with CRT would become benign to the, to the Christ follower. You've got these, this godless ideology out here, the theological framework that's crafted, the godless ideology is brought in. While that's happening, sentimentalism is on one track, pragmatism is on the other and CRT just kicks the door down and walks right in shows up right in the pulpit nobody knows the difference and they're wondering why you if you've been submitted to scripture and its sufficiency for answering these questions are at the church wondering why is everybody going woke now you're the oddball you're the weirdo you're the outcast what's wrong with you and now you're, you're left looking for a church that says, anybody believe this thing we call the Bible? And it's beginning, more, it's beginning to be more difficult to find those places and spaces. In light of what I just shared, it should be no surprise that pastors raced into the pulpits the Sunday after the death of George Floyd to proclaim that black lives matter. And even five days after the death of George Floyd, um, it should have been no surprise that members of the Southern Baptist Convention, which, which I have been a part of for more than a decade and only recently departed from. So I'm not speaking at you. I'm speaking at me and mine, okay? They began to connect the dots for those in question, and they, they, they provided leadership from the SBC, provided this statement, quote, as a convention of churches, I want you to listen closely to this statement because what Spurgeon says is that discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong, Spurgeon says, discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. So I want you to put your discerning ears on and listen to this particular statement made by leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention at the time, five days after the death of George Floyd. Quote, as a convention of churches committed to equality and dignity of all people, Southern Baptists grieved the death of George Floyd, who was killed on May 25th, 2020 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. How's it sound? Pretty good, pretty biblical, right? While, we, while all must grieve, we must understand in our hearts that our fellow citizens of color, that for our fellow citizens of color, incidents like these 
connect to a long history of unequal justice in our country going back to grievous Jim Crow and slavery eras, end quote. Now, I just saw one brother just do his head like this. And you should. They had no idea five days after Floyd whether this was connected to Jim Crow or slavery or the motivations of Chauvin, Derek Chauvin. Or it, they, we barely knew what happened. All we had was a video from one angle. But this would spark in evangelical circles a divide. This is, there was a dividing line. Can you see it? Those who hold to this idea and those who are saying, hey, let's wait for the evidence to come out. If you said let's wait for the evidence to come out, guess what you were called? A racist. You racist. <laughs> right? Dividing line right there. The first part of the statement is correct. As a, as a nation devoted to equality or dignity of all people, we should all, as a believers in Christ, we should all mourn the death of a George Floyd. Seems like such ancient history ago, right? It's only two years ago. We should all mourn the death. Anytime an image bearer loses their life, regardless of the conditions surrounding it, our hearts should break. Why? Because the evidence of the fact that sin has entered the world is that we have what? Death. So our hearts should be wrecked anytime that happens. But our level of grief should never be associated to the amount of melanin that is in your skin. There's no reason for it. It's incorrect to assert that people of color uh, constitute, and the other thing is that it's, it's, it's incorrect, and here, here's the other thing, it's incorrect to assert that people of color constitute an intellectual monolith. So, so you saying all black people think alike? The statement said that. I mean, you could take it in that direction. Not to beat a dead horse, but I, I, I'm not sure who was surveyed. I was, in the, I was in the SBC at the time. I know I didn't get a call. Daryl, did you get a call? Nobody called you. They're trying to track these black voices. Mine was absent because I had told them what I thought. I'm unsure how, the, how this tragedy related to Jim Crow or to slavery. I'm not sure why whites would be less concerned than blacks or why blacks should be more concerned than whites. The death of an image bearer should grieve us all regardless of the circumstances surrounding the death. However, what we would begin to see is these statements in both social media, on Facebooks and blog articles and podcasts, and even some, ser some sermons began focusing on the plight of, of the black man within evangelicalism. Following the cultural signs, evangelicalism actually absorbed and bought this narrative of black victimhood and oppression and began appealing for racial reconciliation. We even had Racial Reconciliation Day. My thought is, how many of those you have to have? Like, if, if we have one and we're reconciled, it should, be, it should be good. But every year, there's another Racial Reconciliation Day. Here's the bottom line. Let me clarify. We who believe in Christ are the followers of Christ are already reconciled because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. He reconciled us both to God the Father and to one another. Many church leaders sought cultural relevance, borrowed from the culture's rhetoric on these topics and began seeking, again, revelation through the counsel, not the counsel of the Word of God, not the counsel of, of the 
sufficient word of God, but they began to tell you what books you needed to purchase. Now, instead of, instead of encouraging you to read Matthew, the book, book of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, or John, they, they were telling you in 2021 that you needed to read the works of men like, uh, or, 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 or women, uh, like Robin DiAngelo, or, or, or Tisby, or Kendi, or Morrison. Church leaders routinely exhorted their congregations to engage in talks about race, forsake whiteness, examine their privilege, and view cultural issues through a distinctly ethnic perspective. The word of God is sufficient. The, the, the word of God destroys strongholds. The, the word of God is, is sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God penetrates the heart, examines the, the motivations and, of, of, of the minds of men. The word of God makes clear what's, what's broken. The, the word of God makes true what's false. The word of God examines these things. It, we, we don't read the word of God. The word of God reads us, and as a result of it, reading us, especially if you're in Christ, you're broken to your core. Dal and I just did a uh, podcast I mentioned on uh, indwelling sin. I did not want to do that podcast. I'm like, my brother gave me a topic. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm a good soldier. I'm a salute and uh, airman. I'm a good airman. I'm a, I'm a salute and do what I need to do. So I started studying. Let me tell you, it, do, do, do a podcast two and a half hours on indwelling sin and see if the word of God doesn't read your heart. And again, I'm, I'm not, I don't at all stand before you as some perfect man by any stretch of the imagination. I think the more mature we are in Christ, the more we recognize our sinfulness, how much more sinful we actually really are. So if, if we understand this and know this is true, why use a counterfeit? Why use books to, that, that are going to try to point you in a direction that, that doesn't include God? As I close, let me offer these words from Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Paul writes to Timothy, but understand this. Here's a reminder. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Did y'all hear that? Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. That sounds like yesterday. Sounds like today. Paul says in verse 6, for among them, among th those believers are people, uh, 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 those who creep into households rather, and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Boy, does that sound like today. But here's the encouragement from Paul in chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 of 2 Timothy. I charge you. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing kingdom, preach the word. 
I, I, I know this is, a, is, a, is a, a pastoral epistle. I know that, that, that Paul is writing to a, a young Timothy who's, who's shepherding a church. And, and, and I recognize that not all of us are, are pastors, but, but there's, there's, a, there's a kernel of truth that we, can, that we can, a nugget that we can pull from here. And what is that? It's that the word is, is sufficient. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. There it is again. And do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. As I said, pastoral epistle, Paul is writing to Timothy, pastoring a church. But there's some truth that we can gather from that. Keep your feet firmly planted in the sufficient word of God. Be an evangelist. You have a great commission that we're going to all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey the commandments with the promise that Christ will be with us even to the end of the age. For us as believers, we should, we should find great encouragement in this. The days we're in are growing ever more dark. But in the, in the darkest of days, the smallest of light is more brightly able to be seen. And you are that light. You carry the word of God with you and share it everywhere you go, that you're resolved, that come what may, the storms that come, you're not moving. You will not be moved from the word of God. And you have a rich heritage of apostles and church fathers and church leaders and average everyday people who were willing at the cost of their lives to stand for truth. And if we in this, this audience of a couple hundred people, if, if, if 12 men could stand up and do what they did, what could, what could a couple hundred people in a specific geographic location in this country do if they said, we're standing we will not be moved. Scripture is true. God's word is what we stand on. Scripture is sufficient for every issue. And regardless of the issues that, that attack my family, that attack my life, that attack me at work, that attack me at home, as flawed as I may be, the word of God still reigns true. And that's where I'll stand. The transformation that will take place first will happen in here as you're resolved. And of course, secondary impact will be you'll see absolute change, transformative change in the culture around you in one of two ways. Either A, God by his sovereignty will save men. They will come out of darkness and walk into the light. Or they will indeed experience the wrath and punishment that was intended for them. And God, in either case, 
will be glorified. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for, again, your word is true. Grateful for the opportunity to declare it. Grateful for these who hear it. I pray that you be with them. Strengthen them in the days to come. In Christ's name, amen.